Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Ronald Gruner. Last name is spelled G-R-U-N-E-R. And he's just published a book in January 11th, 2022. Really a fascinating book, a timely book. Title of it is We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. And Mr. Gruner founded and served as a chief executive of three successful technology firms during his long career. Unlike many technology firms, each company delivered a healthy financial return to its investors. Alliant went public in 1986, while shareholder.com and Sky Analytics were profitably acquired by major public corporations in 2006 and 2015, respectively. Mr. Gruner's experience as an accomplished executive has resulted in a different breed of presidential history. Taken from his business experience, this book, We the Presidents, focuses on results rather than politics, on economics rather than ideology, and on the interconnections linking presidential administrations rather than isolated presidencies. And his website is his full name, www.richardgruner.com, and you can reach him there. But this book was really an interesting read, and I found it to be very timely watching a lot of the financial problems that the U.S. is in right now, but he can talk more about that. So, Richard Gruner, thanks for agreeing to the interview. And, William, uh, just a small correction. That's Ronald Gruner. Ronald, Ronald sorry. I, That's I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> I've been called worse. Okay. Ronald, sorry about that. I apologize. For people who may not have heard of you, this is your first book. Can you kind of talk about your background and what led you to come from a very successful technology career to writing We the Presidents? Oh, I'd be happy to, William, and thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Yes, I spent um, uh, over 40 years in technology firms, and uh, 35 of those uh, uh, years, I was a chief executive of, as you mentioned, three companies in high technology. Uh, and as a chief executive, and more importantly, perhaps as an engineer, which I think of myself more as an engineer than I do a chief executive, uh, you really have to be objective in how you look at the situations and try to look at the facts, not the ideology. I retired about seven years ago and uh, spent a lot of time chatting and, and get, kind of reacquainting with uh, friends uh, all over the country. I, I have kind of an interesting background. I grew up in Oklahoma, one of the reddest of the red states, and I spent most of my life in Massachusetts where the computer industry was at the time, one of the bluest of the blue states. So I've got friends in uh, Massachusetts, friends in Oklahoma, and almost everywhere in between. And I have found there was a lot of dissension and even distrust and perhaps even animosity between friends in Oklahoma and friends in Massachusetts. So I felt maybe something I could contribute would be to write a book that focused on the presidents and the decisions they made, their policies uh, and the and the timeframes they lived in and look at it strictly based on, from my perspective, what the facts were and look at it objectively. So I've written a book that includes uh, the last 100 years and 17 presidents and nowhere in that book do I mention politics. The words Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, uh, left, right, uh, are never mentioned. Instead, I try to talk on the on the issues uh, about how presidents made uh, decisions on the economic issues, on whether or not we uh, the country should be involved internationally, uh, whether we uh, uh, should uh, move uh, towards providing uh, universal health care, whether that was a bad idea. That's what I focused on, but not the politics. And that's what motivated me to write this book. Um, I just make one other comment. Uh, this is my first book. People think that's kind of astonishing, but actually I have to say for those of you that might be thinking about a book uh, out there, it's not as difficult as you might think, particularly if you're writing a nonfiction book, because today um, 
everything is available over the web. Whereas if you were to write a presidential biography uh, 15 years ago, you would have to basically travel around the country, going to the presidential libraries, going to the Library of Congress uh, and uh, all the different government bureaus to access those books and that data physically. Now you can do that all online and do the research on presidents going back uh, you know, 100 years or more online and do it very, very efficiently. So it wasn't as difficult as some people uh, might have thought. But you really go kind of really in detail on each of these presidents, their decisions, the challenges that the country was facing, starting with Warren Harding. Can you kind of talk about the background that led up to the Harding presidency and some of the uh, things that were he were he was confronted with? Well, first of all, let me just point out that Warren G. Harding uh, took office in 1921, uh, lived two and a half years, died of a heart attack and died in 23. He ran uh, surprisingly on the uh, first time on the uh, the slogan, uh, America first. That was his campaign slogan in 1920. He's also uh, focused on a, a secondary uh, uh, slogan was a return to normalcy. And the reason for that is that he inherited the president presidency from Woodrow Wilson, who was uh, very much an activist in many areas. And the United States had just come out of two uh, really uh, difficult times. One was World War One, where in only 18 months, uh, the nation lost 117,000 soldiers in horrible trench warfare in Europe. And then after that, the Spanish flu came out in 1918 through roughly 1920 that killed uh, 650,000 people. So almost a million Americans died in a country that was much smaller than we are today. So Harding inherited a very difficult time, both emotionally for people, but also the country had fallen into a very deep depression, taxes very high, and his job was to return to normalcy, which frankly he did a very good job of. Right. And he, I mean, you kind of go in detail in the book about some of the economic issues, but he was curious because he had kind of a mix of in his administration, a very competent and not so competent. Can you talk kind of about his challenges? Uh, yes, he, uh, he 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 hired both very very well and uh, very very poorly. He uh, let's take the poorly side first. He had what was called the Ohio gain. Uh, Harding was from Marion, Ohio, and he brought in all of his old golf buddies and cronies and drinking buddies, frankly, and poker buddies uh, that he socialized with uh, every every week, a couple of times a week, actually playing poker. And many of those were in the cabinet, frankly, like Dougherty, his uh, attorney general. Uh, they basically began, as soon as they got into office, uh, extorting uh, uh, oil companies uh, for bribes and doing a number of things to enrich themselves. Harding was never involved in that. And that, that scandal really did not come out. Those scandals, the most notable being something called Teapot Dome, where the Secretary of Interior uh, is simply took bribes to give two oil companies, including Sinclair, which is still around today, uh, exclusive, exclusive access without uh, bidding for oil reserves uh, in Wyoming. That was Teapot Dome. Um, but on the other side, on the very positive side, he hired a number of very strong cabinet members. And I just mentioned two that affect us even today. Uh, one is Herbert Hoover, and I'll talk about him in a second. And the other is Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon was the secretary of the treasury under Harding and then also under Coolidge and of course became president after Coolidge. Andrew Mellon was the first uh, Treasury Secretary to talk about changing the way we look at taxation. And his idea, he called it scientific taxation, was that by reducing tax rates, which at the time were over 70%, that by reducing tax rates, you could actually collect more tax revenues 
because the wealthy would not be avoiding taxes. Those reduced tax rates would allow money to flow into the hands of individuals and corporations to invest in business, and the economy would boom, and the and the and the government would have more tax revenues. Now, today we call that supply side economics. Supply side economics. It was Andrew Mellon in 1921 that pioneered that idea. It was revolutionary at the time. The other person he brought in was Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was the Secretary of Commerce. And during the 1920s, under Harding and under Coolidge, he was extremely successful, basically promoting business in many, many respects, uh, promoting standards that allowed business to grow, um, and um, essentially leaving the, the government hands off of business and letting business grow at its own rate, laissez-faire capitalism almost at the time, and it was very successful. What happened with Hoover and Mellon, too, is in... Uh, starting in 1929, when the Great Depression began, they maintained their same policies of essentially hands-off government. And when the Depression got so steep that employment was at 24%, people just were not investing, companies were not investing, people were not spending, everybody was afraid. And somebody had to come in and basically kind of jumpstart the economy, prime the pump, so to speak. Hoover was not willing to do that as president, and he got advice from counsel uh, from Andrew Mellon to let these banks and companies fail. That calls out the weak, the stronger will survive. But that was tough medicine. It didn't work. And uh, that was one of the tragedies of Herbert Hoover after a very successful business career in the 1920s as a cabinet member. He was not as a president. Right. They called him the Wonder Boy, super active. He seemed to be all over the place. He was independently wealthy, but uh, his presidency wasn't seen as very successful addressing the the economic challenges of that time. Would you agree? Oh, I agree. And that's just an example that you can't follow the same methodology uh, in every every single situation. And I just elaborate on that just a bit. One of my realizations I had writing this book uh, is that there's no single economic uh, approach that is universal. That's the uh, the only way to, to run a country. I mean, they're, economically, there are a lot of different philosophies. There's uh, de demand-side economics or Keynesian economics where the government invests during difficult times and then uh, increases taxes to pay off the debt during good times. That's Keynesian economics. There's supply-side economics I mentioned. They're the monetarists, and everybody has their own philosophies, but they're not unique, and they all have their uh, own useful point at different points in time. You just can't take one maniacally and say, this is the only the right approach. And, of course, today we have that kind of attitude where we've got – uh, money and interest promoting different perspectives and saying this is really the only way you can conduct uh, economic policy. That's wrong. And that was Hoover's mistake. He had an idea that worked in the 20s. It failed badly during the Great Depression. Right. He, he and It was his own philosophy. He rejected government activism, which kind of led to his uh, decline in popularity, whereas Roosevelt took a completely different approach, right? That's correct. Let me just say one more positive word about Herbert Hoover. Uh, in 19, I believe it was 1924, uh, Hoover wrote a book called uh, uh, American Individualism. And in that book, he promoted uh, the idea of the rugged individual. And it's the rugged individual that's highly motivated. That's the essence of America and American exceptionalism. And to a great extent, the Libertarian Party has adopted his principles and the idea of individual liberty, which is really core to uh, uh, many thinkings of Americans and American exceptionalism. That was really Herbert Hoover's uh, contribution uh, in many respects today. Right. So now you may not. Oh, sorry. Please continue. I'm sorry. Go ahead, William. No, I, no, please continue on that thought. I would just, you, you mentioned Roosevelt, and you, you're right. I mean, um, 
I'm old enough to have my mother have told me how she, when she was about nine years old, how they listened on the radio, their family during the, the height of the depression in a, a small tumbleweed town in Texas broke listening to the radio and hearing a Roosevelt speech about the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And what he did is he basically went and said, we're going to figure out a way to get this country out of this situation. And if companies won't hire, which they will, they were not, then we will, the government will, and we're going to put people to work. And that was extremely successful in the 1930s. Uh, some people um, criticize that notion today, but that worked very well. And um, the, 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 the gross domestic product, the economy from 1934 to 1940, before World War II, grew at the fastest pace of any time in the last 100 years because of Roosevelt's policies. No, it's incredible. He was the, you, you write in your book, he was the largest employer at the time was him, the government. And people branded him with these labels, socialist, traitor, but he solved the problem. Right. So he, he did solve the problem. And, and the, the notion of calling him a socialist, it, it, you can see that wasn't true because once World War II began in 1941, uh, many of those agencies he, he, he formed, like the, the WPA that uh, put so many people to work, uh, those were all disbanded because they weren't needed anymore because people had jobs in, in industry, uh, the defense industry. He did not nationalize the defense industry. He could have easily made the, arg the argument, we've got to nationalize these companies for the national defense. He did not do that. They were continue they would allow to continue as private companies and even make a small profit. All right, no, it's really remarkable. And there was massive legislation that he passed that really changed the whole legal infrastructure of this, this country, like 15 major pieces of legislation. Can you talk about that? Well, that's uh, many of those 15 pieces are passed in the, the first 100 days of his administration. Had nobody set a better record of getting legislation passed uh, than Roosevelt in his first 100 days. Of course, he had huge margins in Congress. And the expression at the time was legislation isn't passed, it's simp simply saluted as it sails past Congress because it went through so quickly. <laughs> All right. Amazing. And I think one of them was the Glass-Steagall Act. There was uh reforms in the banking and finance industry that are still around today? Well, Glass-Steagall isn't completely around. Glass-Steagall basically said uh, investment banks, these are banks that sell stocks and, and basically uh, speculate in stocks and bonds. Uh, they, they, don't, they won't loan you money to buy a house or uh, provide credit cards. Uh, those are big investment banks like Morgan Stanley and the Goldman Sachs today. Uh, he, he based Glass-Steagall essentially said investment banks have to be separated for commercial banks that do business with consumers. Uh, can't make loans to mortgages and things of that nature. Glass-Steagall pretty much got uh, disbanded in the late 1990s. And that was one of the reasons, I believe, for the collapse in 2008, when there was so much financial speculation on home mortgages, uh, as opposed to having a local, a local banker make decisions as to who to get mortgages and very conservative. You had a lot of these uh, Wild West cowboy investment banks getting involved or shadow banks uh, getting involved, uh, taking too much risk and everything collapsed in 2008, as you know. Right. So there was also the FDIC, though, F which is very important, supporting banking. So people put their money back in the banks. Like he made very uh, clever, clever policies to get the U.S. back on track. And yeah, that's I mean, you mentioned the FDIC, and I mean, you're so right about that. Back before uh, Federal Deposit, the in, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, if a bank uh, if a bank went bust and you had uh, ten thousand dollars in the bank, that money just disappeared. It was gone. It disappeared for you, and it disappeared out of the money supply. And so basically, and because banks, uh, 
that went out of business couldn't insure that. Basically, the government put in an insurance company, which is the FDIC, that uh, today insures about a quarter million dollars. If you lose, if the bank goes out of business, uh, you can collect up to a quarter million dollars through that insurance. And so that made people willing to go back in and put their money back in banks, and that allowed banks then to loan that money to begin re to rebuild the country. Uh, it was kind of a two-step process. And you'll still see that stamp today. Some people don't know where it comes from, but it goes back to Roosevelt. You'll still see that on banks or bank Oh, of course. Bra banks brag, uh, brag about that, the FDIC insurer. Right. No, it's incredible. And there were interesting things that I didn't know about. There's a lot of history in this book, the Townsend plan, Epic Clubs, Swope plan. There's a lot of things that I didn't know that ideas were fermenting about how to solve well, some of them. Uh, well, that was a, that's a very fascinating time. We're talking about the, you know, from roughly 1931 to 1935. And there were all these ideas from uh, uh, Townsend, uh, from a, uh, Upton Sinclair, who was running for a, a governor in California. That was called the Epic Plan. Huey Long had a plan. The idea was, look, companies have failed. People are starving. Uh, the, the government needs to provide some minimum compensation. We call that now universal basic income. Uh, which is up for discussion again. And th there were lots of plans around that area. Uh, well, the reason for that is many people, somewhat understandably, believed capitalism had failed because uh, uh, unemployment was almost 25%. The companies had drawn in their horns, were not investing, weren't hiring people, and people were starving. If you ever saw the movie uh, The Grapes of Wrath, you know what we're talking about here. It was terrible. Hoover Towns, uh, Hoovervilles, or whatever. Yeah. What's that? Oh, it was Hoover. They had those Hoovervilles, like shanty towns. Hooverville they, they, and uh, the Okies going from Oklahoma, where I happen to be from, to California, and uh, just the starvation that many people were suffering from. Uh, now, it's interesting. One of his other major contributions, Roosevelt's, uh, perhaps the, the contribution that, of course, is most well known today, was Social Security. That idea was that basically when people get to 65, uh, it will give them some minimum amount of income through Social Security, where they'd, uh, they'd be somewhat self-supporting and wouldn't be in poverty. Uh, now, that idea didn't come from some socialist. That idea came from the president of General Electric, Gerald Swope. Gerald Swope had a lunch meeting with Roosevelt, I believe in late 1933, where he proposed an idea he had proposed to Hoover, and Hoover rejected it, that the government get involved and provide a form of insurance and disability insurance uh, and and a, a pension plan, uh, which came to be known as Social Security. So the idea for Social Security uh, came from Gerald Swope, the president of General Electric, because he felt something had to be done. Right. So it came from kind of the business community, which is interesting. It didn't come from maybe social activists or something like that. But the war happened, like you stated earlier, the war was upon us, 1941. Everything kind of changed, but... Um, then Roosevelt unfortunately passed away and, uh, right into his fourth term, right? Yeah. He, uh, he, uh, I think he was 82 days into his fourth term, died on April 12th, 1945, unexpectedly, but he was in retrospect in poor health and uh, it should not have been that unexpected, but he had been president and such a huge presence in the United States. Uh, people probably thought he'd live forever. And so he, this gets hand, the situation of the kind of finalizing, Pacific War gets handed off to uh, Truman. Can you talk about the challenges Truman faced and maybe some of the economic issues post-war? Well, Truman uh, wasn't very popular with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt only brought Truman in at the last minute in the, in the 1944 election because his current VP, Henry Wallace, was not doing well politically. So he basically uh, 
can say dumped Henry Wallace and brought in Harry Truman. Uh, Truman got no briefings uh, of any kind, uh, only uh, did not know about the atomic bomb, for example, did not know about Roosevelt's ideas for the post-war uh, uh, recovery. And so when he uh, became president in April of 1945, he had really no preparation at all. And the first decision he had to make was um, how to end the war with Japan, because uh, the war with Germany was rapidly ending and ended early in May. But Japan was still going on fighting. And the feeling was uh, it would take a massive invasion of, of Japan itself, costing perhaps a million casualties to bring Japan to a, to a surrender. So he had to decide whether or not to use the atomic bomb. And uh, I talk about it extensively in my book. There's a number of pages devoted to that. But the long and short of it is he decided the best way to, to end the war quickly and save the most lives was to make a statement to Japan that we have a bomb uh, that's so powerful, you have no choice but to surrender. And uh, that's what happened. It took two bombs to do that. But after the second bomb, Japan surrendered quickly, urged by the emperor Hirohito. And uh, that was a decision that... Still debated today, but I think if you look at all the facts and the, the fact that Japan was uh, uh, would not agree to an unconditional surrender, uh, I think Truman made the right decision. It was a very difficult decision. And then, of course, he had to decide at the end of the war what to do with Germany and Japan. And he ha he was lobbied very strongly by members of his cabinet, particularly a fellow by the name of uh, Henry Morgenthau, who at the time was the Department of State, basically said, turn Germany into an agricultural state. Basically, do not allow it to rebuild its industry, just allow it to raise raise crops. And that word had got out uh, uh, six months before the end of the war, and uh, Hitler's propaganda, uh, propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, uh, took that and really uh, basically motivated the soldiers by saying the America wants to turn Germany into a giant potato patch, which nobody wanted. But anyway, after the war, Truman, uh, disregarded Morgenthau's uh, advice, uh, replaced Morgenthau with uh, George Marshall as Secretary of State, and they made the decision, what we have to do is we have to rebuild Germany, we have to rebuild Japan, and basically turn them into friends of the West, so to speak, and basically friends of democracy and capitalism. And because of Truman and the policies put, he put in place, we did that, and we did that very, very well. Unfortunately, uh, we've not done that well, um, obviously, in the Middle East. Uh, that's something we perhaps can talk about in a few minutes. Right. So, I mean, they're, they're talking about the economy of the post-war world. What was Truman's kind of domestic policies and how did he uh, address the kind of challenges in the U.S. homeland? Well, at the time... Uh, the nation still believed that the national debt was something that had to be worked down as quickly as possible. So uh, after the United States came out of the war in 1945, we had about 18 months of relatively high inflation. Now, by high, I mean, as I recall, 6 to 8%. But then it damped down pretty quickly. What, Tr what Truman did is uh, rather than cutting taxes after the war, which had risen significantly, he kept those taxes high with the uh, objective of paying off as much of the national debt as possible. And he paid off a significant amount of that debt during his uh, essentially eight years in office. Uh, that was a key part of his policy. Now, because there was so much pent up demand uh, from uh, from the war, the, the economy boomed, uh, although many people weren't uh, didn't expect it to. Uh, top economist Paul Samuelson thought the economy would tank after the war. It did not. It boomed as soldiers came back and uh, uh, married, and we had the baby boom, and uh, we had the GI Bill sending uh, uh, soldiers to college, getting educated, and coming into good jobs. Uh, things just went very well. Truman did a good, a good job in that respect. 
Right. So, I mean, I think that the, the post-war was really kind of a fresh start in a lot of ways. And he led to, the, I mean, the, the great general Eisenhower. Can you talk about Eisenhower and what he did uh, as far as his administration? Well, I, the, the first thing Eisenhower did was he uh, basically negotiated uh, an armistice, a ceasefire with uh, with North North Korea. He had uh, he did that within six months of taking office. The remarkable thing about Eisenhower, even though he was a general and had been in the military his whole career, um, after uh, after Korea, uh, during his uh, eight years as president, only one American soldier died, and that was killed by a sniper in Lebanon. And even though we were, there were many, many issues going on in, in the Middle East and in Asia uh, that could have precipitated the United States getting involved, Eisenhower chose not to. And uh, he took the policy that uh, negotiation and diplomacy is better than going into battle. And he said uh, he kept us out of war for eight years. Now, one thing Eisenhower did that was uh, unfortunate is during World War II, he had had a great success with uh, uh, covert operations through uh the OSS, which is the predecessor to today's CIA. And so when uh, Winston Churchill came to Eisenhower in 1953 and said, look, uh, the, uh, the Iranians have just nationalized our oil company. Uh, we're in a, this big uh, debate about oil profits and uh, uh, they nationalized the company and we need to do something to turn uh, the government over. He had made that uh, approach to Truman. Truman rejected that. But Eisenhower uh, said, OK, we'll see what we can do to help because they had been war allies. And so Eisenhower took up the idea of using a covert operation under the CIA, as had been done so successfully in World War II, uh, to basically overturn the government, the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953. And that was, in my opinion, the beginning of our unfortunate involvement in the Middle East, which uh, we're seeing the effects of today. And uh, many people in the Middle East still remember how the United States got involved so covertly starting in 1953. Right. I mean, it. Uh, th there was a lot of challenges, but there was always in the background of his administration, the Cold War, communism, and the threat internationally and domestically. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, the whole Red Scare was uh, going on. That was during the period of Joe McCarthy, uh, where there was a great concern that uh, communists had infiltrated all through the government and industry and academia. And there was some uh, good reason for believing that, because after World War II, uh, uh, literally dozens of spies were uncovered. Uh, in the defense industry that were feeding secrets to the Soviet Union. So there was truth in that, but they had not really propagated into Hollywood and in the government and academia at the level uh, that uh, Joe, uh, Joe McCarthy uh, had, had suggested. Nobody went to jail, even though he had pursued that for something like four years. Uh, they found nobody, although it was very difficult. The other thing that's interesting about Eisenhower is uh, he's famous for, he was the uh, idea, his idea was to build a a federal highway system, uh, the internet, interstate highway system across the country. He had seen the Autobahn of Germany, was very impressed with that. But that was a big, big fight. And he had a fight with the, the Trekkers Union, which you'd think would be supporters of better highways. But at the time, the, the Trekkers were very, very uh, skeptical that that would work. And they were concerned about a two or three cent increase in gas taxes. And so they were very, very much against the interstate highway system initially. The other were people that were... Um, just feeling that the United States, uh, starting with Social Security, was creeping towards socialism and communism and that the interstate highway system uh, that Eisenhower was proposing would be uh, creeping communism. And he was accused of being a socialist and even a communist by the John Birch Society for promoting uh, a federal system called the interstate highway system. 
But he got around that by changing the name to the defense highway system and claiming the highway system was not just for consumers and civilians, but was critical if uh, we were ever attacked to be able to allow military transports to move quickly around the country. And that basically broke that that log jam. And he was kind of one of the first in, in his, there were very prevalent civil rights challenges under his administration as well, correct? Yeah, that's that's true. I'll, I'll use a phrase that may offend some people, uh, but if you had to read the book to get the context, uh, in many respects, Eisenhower was a, a well-meaning segregationist. And I, I don't want to offend anybody on that, but he had grown up in the deep South, had only seen segregated uh, uh, society all through the military at West Point, at Augusta Golf Club, everywhere. So he was personally against uh, moving too quickly to desegregate. But when uh, when uh, Truman basically signed an executive order to desegregate the military, they drug their feet during Truman's administration, but uh, Eisenhower did, did that quickly, desegregated the military. And then when uh, schools began to uh, desegregate uh, after Plessy versus uh, uh, the uh, Little Rock High School lawsuit in 1954, in 1957, he sent in federal troops to facilitate that integration um, and, and began to integrate schools across the United States. That was a courageous move on his part because in many parts of the United States, that was very, very unpopular. Right. And he also kind of had a different, his administration was much more business oriented as opposed to political. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, he, uh, Eisenhower had never joined a political party. And uh, when uh, in, in 1950, 51, 52, when uh, he was being considered a candidate to run for a president, uh, both political parties were ap uh, actively campaigned to have him join their party. He uh, eventually elected to uh, join the Republican Party, but he never really felt a, a member of a, a, of a political party uh, and uh, focused on, like I said, the issues and building business and keeping the uh, bringing the national debt down as quickly as possible and, and issues like that. Right. So he he was kind of a maintenance and then he had his eight years and we come to uh, somebody who's a Republican to a Democrat. Right. Uh, John F. Kennedy. Can you talk about that transition and how John F. Kennedy? Well, the economy actually grew uh, very well during the 50s, except for the last two years where it fell under recession in 58, or 58 and 59 and 60. And so John Kennedy ran on the idea, let's get the country moving again. OK, and you hear that often uh, from from presidential candidates. Uh, uh, former President Trump ran on the idea of make America great again, which is uh, somewhat similar. Let's get the country moving again. And so Kennedy was in contrast to Eisenhower. Eisenhower was uh, in the 60s at the time, uh, somewhat grandfatherly. And John Kennedy was young, uh, 43, as I recall, uh, very rigorous, had a, a beautiful family. And uh, it was a whole, for many people, a breath of fresh air and, and high energy uh, coming to the presidency in contrast to Eisenhower. Right. And so what were the things that, I mean, Kennedy had tons of international challenges and, and squabbles within his administration, correct? Well, the first challenge he had was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, the... Uh, Eisenhower administration, I beg, your, I beg your pardon, that was the Bay of Pigs issue, the Bay of Pigs uh, uh, invasion. And the Eisenhower uh, administration was planning an invasion of Cuba, uh, a covert invasion to look like uh, Cuban uh, nationalists were doing that. And uh, essentially, uh, Kennedy got talked into that by the general staff um, the first few months of his administration. Of course, that was a disaster. Kennedy took full responsibility for that, saying uh, uh, that 
success as many fathers and uh, failure as an orphan. And uh, he was right about that. And then he had the Cuban Missile Crisis, where uh, six months before the Cuban Missile Crisis became an issue, the United States uh, and uh, NATO had put missiles into Turkey and perhaps Italy, but Turkey for sure, which threatened the Soviet Union, retaliated by putting missiles into Cuba. And so we had the crisis and uh, Kennedy handled that well. He came out of that basically viewed as a, a major international leader, very successful. Now, in my book, I talk about the backstory, which is very interesting. And in that if you, the, the, the Department of State papers have been released and the correspondence, and there were something like 30 uh, interchanges during that short 10 day period, are quite interesting. And that essentially Khrushchev surprised, would have surprised many people, basically took Kennedy under his wing and proposed how to end that. And, and Khrushchev very early into that uh, situation said, look, uh, we'll take our missiles out of Cuba promptly uh, if you take yours out of Turkey, and you don't have to announce that to the American people uh, because that might be a loss of face. You don't have to mention that. And also, if you promise never to invade Cuba. And so Kennedy promised to do that. The missiles came out, and Kennedy was a hero. And two years later, Khrushchev was kicked off the Politburo. Wow. So Khrushchev was gone, and then Kennedy gets assassinated. And then Lyndon Johnson, kind of a whole different character, different administration, different policies uh, started with him, right? That's correct. Well, it didn't stop with him because in 63, after Kennedy was kind of getting his footing uh, after uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis in the Bay of Pigs, he was actively promoting uh, uh, an aggressive civil rights program. He was uh, uh, promoting a, an aggressive tax cut. Uh, he was promoting uh, uh, an, an aggressive social program also. And Lyndon Johnson essentially picked those up and uh, I'll say somewhat out of sympathy after Kennedy's assassination, of course, Johnson was a great legislator, got much of that legislation passed, which had originally started under Kennedy in 1963. The Kennedy tax cut, even though that was passed in 64 under Johnson, it's still called the Kennedy, uh, Kennedy tax cuts. And uh, much of the civil rights legislation that uh, Lyndon Johnson passed was promoted by uh, Eisen, uh, by, uh, Ken by Kennedy in, in 1963, as were loosened and changed immigration laws. Right, there was an immense amount of change in those early days of Johnson. Those Huge those are amount. still with us. Of course, the other thing that the other thing that Johnson inherited from uh, Kennedy uh, was uh, the Vietnam situation. Uh, Kennedy had begun to put troops and, well, let's call them advisors, into Vietnam in 63, uh, and that was increasing. And uh, and then the whole thing basically exploded uh, during uh, 1964 under, under Johnson, and that was what really destroyed Johnson's administration and broke his heart. Uh, the whole situation with Vietnam, he couldn't figure out how to extricate himself from. Right, and he decided not to run for president again. So that was like real strange changes uh, administration sensibilities from Kennedy's assassination to John. Very unusual for a, a political person to refuse more power. So I, I was curious. Well, he, if you read his biography, his autobiography, uh, his heart was broken with what happened in Vietnam and the number of deaths. And he, he could not find a way to get the United States out of that honorably. Uh, honorable being where, you know, we didn't totally retreat and uh, he would be blamed as a communist sympathizer. And of course, that was the first knee-jerk reaction whenever you're not playing hardball with the communists back in the 50s and 60s. Right. I mean, there's those accusations. It goes back to Roosevelt, too, or, you know, being a socialist or whatever. That's correct. We're kind of at about 35 minutes. There's a lot more in this book. You come up to the present age. If, when people get we the present, what else can they expect 
as you kind of analyze the presidents from Johnson through Nixon to all the way to the present with uh, Donald J. Trump? Well, I have to say writing the book was, uh, I really enjoyed writing the book. It was very enlightening to be uh, how much past presidents affect today's events. And uh, there's probably a dozen major issues uh, that are highlighted in the book that affect us today one way or the other. I'll just give you one. The, the top of the news right now is Ukraine, as we all know. And if you look at the situation in Ukraine, uh, that return of the Cold War and those tensions between East and West were predicted by the top uh, diplomats in Washington, particularly a fellow by the name of George Keenan uh, in, in the 1990s. Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, NATO had to decide what to do, including disband itself. It chose not to and chose to basically move eastward and, and, and court the former Warsaw Pact countries and move and to begin to threaten uh, Russia's borders in the late 1990s. In 1999, uh, they made uh, Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic members of NATO, which was a great threat to uh, uh, Russia. Russia began investing in uh, defense spending, which it had fallen like a rock for 10 years. And as George Keenan predicted in my book, it's in the, in the Clinton chapter, there's quite a bit of discussion about that. We're exactly in the situation that was predicted by, uh, by diplomats if NATO is allowed to expand eastward to threaten Russia, because Russia had been invaded by the Germans in, as you know, the early 1940s, Russia lost something like 25 million people. And before that, that's still very much part of the Russian psyche by Napoleon in the early 19th century. So invasion from the east, from the West is something that Russia fears tremendously, and it drives much of their thinking in there. That's one of the issues going on in Russia today. I'm not a Russian sympathizer. I'm just telling you what history says. And much of what we're dealing with in Ukraine today, those seeds were planted during the Clinton administration when NATO was allowed to expand eastward. Right. And it's very important. And a lot of the, like you have a very economic approach to all of your analyses and analysis of the different presidents and administrations. And we have a lot of economic issues today. So I think your book charts that course of all these difficult decisions that presidents had to make in economics. I mean, how do you see our situation right now economically in the context of what you learned putting this book together? Well, the, the biggest concern I think people probably have right now, literally today as we speak, is probably inflation. And if you go back and, and look um, at uh, some of the more credible uh, journals uh, over the last few years, uh, that's that's that was predicted and understandable. But, you know, the Fed had been pumping uh, money into the economy very strongly since uh, 2009. The, 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 the money base has grown tremendously, the supply of money. And the, the classic definition of inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. So too few goods is the supply chain. So with what's happened with the pandemic, the supply chain's been greatly weakened. Uh, that's oil supplies, that's supplies coming from Asia, that's supplies coming even from our own factories, uh, meatpacking plants, uh, plants, for example. So people have come out of the pandemic with pent-up demand, like after World War II. They want to buy things, they want to do things, they want to go out to eat, they want to travel, they, uh, et cetera. And so the supply chains are weak, and so that's limiting supply, that's raising prices. And then all this money that's flowed into the economy has made money available and people are bidding up prices. So today's inflation uh, isn't something that you can blame one president for. This is something we've sowed the seeds uh, for a long time, but in particular, the last few years during the pandemic. And it's going to take a while for that to work out. Gotcha. And so there's a lot of information in this book. It's very thoroughly researched and written. What would you like to add or anything that you I'd missed or 
before we wrap this up? What was your kind of final comments? Well, William, I think you've hit all the key points. I mean, one question I'm often asked uh, is if there's one characteristic that you think characterizes uh, the great presidents, um, I guess I would use the word resolve yeah, because when presidents are faced with difficult issues that are unpopular, the, the presidents that really distinguished themselves had the resolve to, to see it through. Uh, Roosevelt uh, during the 1930s saw war coming, a world war perhaps, and it's believed he could not allow Germany to overtake Europe. So he basically helped uh, England during the war through the Lindley's programs. And that, that was extremely unpopular with most of the Americans uh, from 1935 on until Pearl Harbor. He did that. Um, when uh, President, uh, I beg your pardon, when General MacArthur uh, was fighting the, the the North Korean war, went into North Korea, and then went to the Chinese board and wanted to go into China with nuclear weapons. Truman fired him on the spot after after MacArthur went around Truman to Congress trying to get support from Congress. And that was a brave decision. That hurt Truman tremendously. And a more recent one is uh, Jimmy Carter. I mean, Jimmy Carter promoted the idea of energy conservation, which threatened many people because it was they saying, we've got to reduce our oil consumption. We've got to reduce our... Con uh, energy consumption per capita because they had been growing 1.2% for 50 years. It's unsustainable. And people made fun of him because of his cardigan sweaters and all that. But today, energy consumption per capita is down 15% relative to 1978. It's conservation, not energy production, which has made us largely in, uh, energy independent. So uh, I think Carter gets credit for that. Interesting. Well, there's a lot more in this book. And you have Where's the best place to get this? Do you get it at Amazon or your website? Wrong well, you can start. You can start with your local independent bookstore. They all have access. If they don't have it on the shelf, just tell them to order. We the presidents, they can get that in a few days. Uh, if you want to order online, of course, there's a uh, there is a uh, Amazon uh, and Barnes and Noble, and uh, you can always visit our website, wethepresidents.us, for uh, more suggestions. That's wethepresidents.us. We the president. I'll put that in the show notes. We the presidents. US. And then your website is ronaldbruner.com, right? Yes, so, that's correct. And that goes directly at this point to we the presidents.us. Okay, I see. I get it. Okay, so that feeds into the we the presidents.us. And if people want to reach out to you or ask you any questions, is your website the best place or social media? Uh, the best place to find me is that. Uh, is at gruna.com. I'm sorry for the various sites. And I have to put a link in. May it matter of fact, uh, do this. Uh, go to wethepresidents.us and by tomorrow morning, there'll be a way to reach me. wethepresidents.us and there'll be a way to reach me uh, tomorrow morning. Awesome. Really fascinating discussion. Great book. Very timely. You, people can learn a lot of important aspects of American history, economic history as well. Title of the book again is We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century by Ronald Gruner published January 11th, 2022. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you, William. Enjoy chatting with you. Cool. Stay there. Okay, perfect. That was great. So